What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the greatest things that accepting Jesus does for us is it gives us a relationship with God. And the thing that has kept us from having a relationship with God was our sin. And, you know, Jesus dealt with our sin at the cross. He not only took our sin, but he also took the penalty of our sin, which we deserve so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And when we place our our faith in Jesus Christ, we have this wonderful privilege of now having a relationship with God. God, but that's not the only thing that happens when you place your faith in Christ. You have a relationship with God, but also your relationship to sin changes. That that relationship that we once had where we were slaves of sin, where we were under the power of sin and the penalty of sin, that now changes as well as we come to Jesus and accept him as our Savior. We go from being slaves to sin to children of God. We go from being under the power of sin to under the power of God. And, you know, this is something that Jesus is going to be sharing with us in the passage that we look at this morning of the wonderful truth, the wonderful reality that he has the power to take someone from slavery to sin and bring them freedom. And the reason that he's capable of doing that is because he's the one who lived a sinless life. He's the one who paid for our sin on the cross. And so as we come to John chapter 8 and continue uh, through this, this study that we're going through, Jesus and the religious leaders, they've been having this back and forth debate. Ultimately, the debate is centered around who is Jesus? And Jesus has made very clear that he is God. And we ended in verse 30 the last time we were in John chapter 8 and we're told, this as he spoke these words many believed in him and so that's the last thing that happened Jesus has been declaring who he is he's been declaring that he's God and many of those listening to Jesus's words they come to this place where they believe in him and now as we come to verse 31 Jesus is going to share a very important truth to those who have just believed in who he is he's going to share something very important for them and for us as we listen to that and it's interesting that the group that's going to respond to Jesus's declaration is not the group he's actually talking to because he's talking to those who have believed in him, but yet the response is going to come from those who don't believe him, the religious leaders. And they're going to say something that's going to show just how self-deceived they really are. And then Jesus is going to share with them this such important truth of the fact that they are slaves to sin, but yet that he can bring them freedom from their slavery 
to sin. And so that's going to be what we're focused on this morning is this wonderful reality of what Jesus can do for you and I to deliver us from slavery to sin. And we're going to look at this general statement that Jesus makes here in John chapter 8, but we're also going to take some time to look at some specifics that Romans chapter 6 tells us about the freedom we have from slavery to sin because of what Jesus has done for us. And hopefully after looking at both of those passages, we're going to understand much better the the state that we're in, how our relationship to sin has drastically changed, and hopefully the way in which we can now live our lives the way that God desires us to. So let's start with what Jesus shares to those who have now believed in him, believe that he has declared who he is, that he's God, they've accepted that. Let's see what he says to them in verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 8. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So there's lots of people listening to Jesus there as he's at the temple. You know, we've seen the debate going back and forth with him and the religious leaders, but it's not just the religious leaders that are part of this audience. There are many more that are listening, and there's a group of Jews within this audience of Jesus that have heard his words, that have heard him declare that he is God, and now they have believed in the words of Jesus. And so Jesus has a special message for that group. For those of you who have believed that I am who I claim to be, God, this is what I want you to know. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So this group that has just come from the place of believing in Jesus' words, Jesus is saying, for you guys, I want to give you a challenge. If you want to go deeper than just believing that I am God, you want to actually be my disciple, you want to be a person who follows me, then this is my challenge to you. You have to abide in my word. If you're willing to abide in my word, then you are my disciple indeed. And that's really, Jesus wants these people to go from that place of just saying, yeah, we believe what you're saying. We believe that that you're God. He's saying, no, now I want you to actually be a disciple of mine, to be a follower of mine. And for that to happen, you need to abide in my word. Don't, Don't just listen to the words that I've said. Don't just believe in the words that I said. I need you to abide in the words that I've said. Now, this Greek word translated abide means to remain in something, to to not leave it, to not depart from it. And so Jesus is saying, you know, the words that I am declaring to you, I need you to remain in them. Those are words that you cannot depart from. These are words that I need you to live out in your life. And if you do that, you will be my disciples indeed. And Jesus says, you know what, there's going to be a wonderful effect If you're willing to remain in my words, something important is going to happen. This is what it is. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, the words of Jesus are true. And so if you remain in them, you abide in them, what Jesus is saying is you are now going to know the truth. Why? Because the words that I declare are truth. But not only will you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You know, this is such a a wonderful truth that Jesus brings to us. There's wonderful freedom that comes to a person who takes the time to abide in the Word of God. 
When you're willing to remain in God's word, to, to hold fast to God's word, to not depart from God's word, the truth of God's word will set you free. David Gusick wrote this, There is nothing like the freedom we can have in Jesus. No money can buy it. No status can obtain it. No works can earn it. And nothing can match it. It is tragic that not every Christian experiences this freedom, which can never be found except by abiding in God's word and being Jesus's disciple. You know, if you want to experience one of the greatest freedoms that there is, it comes through abiding in the word of God. You know, there's something that we need to realize is this world and the enemy are just pumping all sorts of lies at us. And the truth comes from God's word, the truth of who God is, the truth of who we truly are. And those truths set us free. They set us free in wonderful ways. But yet that freedom doesn't come unless you're abiding in those truths. You're remaining in those truths. You're holding on to those truths because those truths are being challenged by our culture day in and day out. And so often as believers, we don't remain in those things. We don't hold on to those things. We don't continue in those things. And so therefore the benefit of that truth, the freedom of that truth often isn't benefiting us because we're not abiding in those things. And so this group of people that have believed in Jesus' word, Jesus saying, if you want to go deeper, you want to be my disciple, you want to be someone who truly follows me, then you need to abide, remain in my truth, in my words. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, now we're going to see the religious leader's response. Now, remember, this is the group that Jesus is not speaking to, because they're not the ones who have believed in him. He's speaking to the group that has believed in him, but the religious leaders, you know, they want to chime in here to what Jesus says. And notice what they say in verse 33, because it really shows how self-deceived this group is. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now think of this. I want you to picture being in this crowd here and Jesus is now offering this freedom. You know, if you abide in my words, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I'm offering you freedom. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders chime in. And ultimately what they're declaring is, Jesus, we don't need any freedom that you have to offer because we are already free. You see, in order to recognize, in order to say, I need freedom, you got to recognize I'm bound. I'm in a place where I need to be freed because I'm enslaved. And notice their statement that they make here, because the statement is, is meant to say, Jesus, we don't need what you're offering because we are already free. But it shows how self-deceived they actually are. They say this, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, you realize what a foolish statement this is. I mean, if you read into Exodus, you realize that not long after the nation of Israel was established and grew, guess what? They were slaves in bondage to Egypt for over 400 years. And if you continue in their history, you find they were also in bondage to the Philistines. They were in bondage to the Babylonians. They were in bondage to the Persians. They were in bondage to the Syrians. And you can say, you know what? Maybe these people don't know their history well. Maybe they haven't studied, you know, the, the, the general 
generations before, but you know what? All they had to do was look at their present circumstances because at the very moment that they make this foolish statement that we've never been in bondage to anyone, guess what? They presently were in bondage to Rome. Rome was their oppressor. Rome ultimately had them enslaved. And so to have the audacity to make the statement of, we've never been in bondage to anyone. You're in bondage right now. What are you talking about? And you've been in bondage over and over again in your history. So there's self-deception here. Like, Jesus, we don't need freedom because we're free. No, you're not. You're not free at all. You know, I think this is interesting because we see the same kind of response many people today buy into a lie. A lie that they don't need freedom, that they're already free. And we bring the good news of Jesus. We bring the good news of what he can do to free them from slavery to sin. And they say, I don't need freedom. I'm already free. You know, I don't have a need for what Jesus can offer because I already have freedom. I'm not bound to anything. They're deceived just like these religious leaders are deceived. So let's see how Jesus responds to the religious leader's foolish statement that they've never been in bondage to anyone, verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You know, Jesus could have just started with a history lesson. What did you guys just say? Are you serious? I mean, let's just start right now. Uh, we're all enslaved here to, to Rome, and, and we can just start going back from the, the Syrians and the Persians and the Babylonians all the way to the Egyptians. I mean, Jesus could have started with a history lesson showing the foolishness of the statement that I have never, we have never been enslaved to anyone. But notice Jesus doesn't bring up the bondage that another group of people have placed upon the Israelites. Instead, he brings up a bondage that's actually even worse, a bondage that each person brings upon themselves. Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, it's important to note here when Jesus says, whoever commits sin, this word sin that he uses is in a verb tense indicating a habitual, continual action. So what Jesus is saying is whoever is in a habitual, continual sin, you are a slave to sin. When you habitually sin in a particular way, you become a slave to that sin. And Jesus is ultimately saying, you guys are claiming you don't need the freedom that I offer because you're not in bondage to anything. But the thing that you miss is that you're in bondage to the worst thing of all. We won't even talk about the fact that you're in bondage to Rome right now. You're in bondage to your sin. Why? Because you habitually commit it. And so you right now are in bondage to the worst thing of all. And you're in desperate need of the freedom I offer because I'm not just offering freedom from any bondage. I'm offering freedom from the most significant bondage, bondage to sin. You know, most of the people today who reject Jesus' offer of freedom, they think they're already free because they don't recognize this reality. They don't recognize the fact that because I habitually sin, I'm a slave to sin. Because the enemy has done a great job in convincing people that, you know what, the fact that you can sin in all these different ways is actual freedom, not slavery. 
And you hear people say that, you know, well, I'm free to, to take whatever drugs I want, or I'm free to sleep with whoever I want, or I'm free to act in this way, or I'm free to, to do this and, and indulge in that. And they think, well, see, see, that shows how free I really am. No, that doesn't show how free you really are. What it really just shows is how enslaved you really are. You know, the fact that you're just indulging in these things is a fact that shows that, hey, you know what? You're doing all this because you're a slave to sin. You think, oh, it's such a freedom to be able to do, do all these different sinful things. No, you're actually incapable in yourself of getting away from that. You're indulging in that because you're a slave of that sin. You're not free at all. Now, before we look at what Jesus says in verses 35 and 36, I want us to look at a, a little bit of what Romans 6 reveals to us. Because in Romans 6, we, we're told some important truths about the where we're at now, because of what Jesus has done, if you've placed your faith in him and our relationship to sin and how it's changed. And it brings us some very important things to consider. So Romans chapter six, starting in verse one and two says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You know, as a pastor, I've talked with many people and, and discovered that a lot of people have a very wrong perspective when it comes to their relationship to sin. The relationship that they, they once had, in many respects, they don't see it very different now that they've come and accepted Jesus. And, you know, the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so there are Christians who take that and think, well, you know, whenever I sin a lot, God's grace and forgiveness is there even more. And so that kind of gives them this mindset of, well, I have this license to sin. I mean, I'll just keep sinning because God's grace will always be there. God's forgiveness will always be there. And unfortunately, there are many people in the church with that type of mentality. It's no big deal. You know, why not just pursue these sinful things? I'll be forgiven. You know, it's not a problem. Well, Paul knew that when he said where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, that people would misunderstand this, that people would misapply this to their life. And that's why right after he makes that statement, he asks this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, once again, as we noted with what Jesus is saying, this is what Paul is saying as well. When it speaks of continuing sin, it's speaking of a habitual lifestyle, something that's continual so shall we continue to habitually sin that grace may abound? And the answer is certainly not. For Paul, the idea that anyone would continue in habitual sin that grace would abound is unthinkable. Thomas Robinson said this about someone who wants to continue in sin that grace may abound. How absurd that a medicine should feed the disease it extinguishes. You know, grace is the medicine, sin is the disease. And how absurd to think, you know what, I'm going to feed my disease because I got plenty of medicine. Uh, let's just keep feeding it. Let's just keep staying in this disease. <coughs> Excuse me. Because I got plenty of medicine to overcome this. So I'm just going to indulge in it. How foolish that would be. Paul asks a great question to show why habitually sinning is not acceptable. Notice what he says in verse 2. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? 
And this is something that's so important for us to understand, so important to understand the change that happens in our relationship to sin when we accept Jesus Christ. You know, when we place our faith in Jesus, we died to sin, and that relationship to sin permanently changed. Before we accepted Jesus, our our relationship to sin was very much very different. We were slaves to sin. We were controlled by sin. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And he and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. This verse really clearly makes, hey, before you accepted Jesus, you were dead in sins. Now, something that is dead has no capacity to change their situation. So before you accepted Christ, you were dead in sin with no capacity to change. That was just your direction, your focus, your life. But Jesus had the capacity to free us from our sin. Because he lived a sinless life. He took the judgment of our sin upon himself. He paid for our sin on the cross in order to free us from sin. To set us free from the power and penalty of sin. So when we accept Jesus, our relationship to sin completely changed. We go from being dead to sin. We go from being enslaved in sin with no way of escape to being dead to sin and completely set free from sin. The power that sin has over us is now dead. It no longer has power over our life like it used to. We've been set free, and now you and I can choose not to sin. So the first thing important to understand about a Christian's relationship to sin is we have a new relationship of being dead to sin. And what Paul's saying is, hey, if we're dead to sin, we shouldn't live any longer in it. You're dead to that. That shouldn't be what characterizes your life. That shouldn't be how you live your life anymore because there should be a total change in your relationship to sin. It simply isn't fitting to live any longer in something that you died to. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Our old life is we were dead in sin and under the power of sin, and that's gone because now we're a new creation. We're dead to sin. We don't have the power of sin over us like we once did. And because of that new relationship of being dead to sin and no longer under the power of sin, we need to live like the new creation, live like the way that God has now made us. Understanding the new relationship we have of being dead to sin is a real essential in the sanctification process. Because sanctification has two kind of parts to it. First, you are set apart from sin and set apart to God. And so that first part, you have to recognize, hey, I'm actually dead to this old life, dead to this old way. And so I truly am and should be set apart from what I used to live for, from what I used to be. That that life is no longer and should no longer be what I'm all about. And understand that we now have a power within us, the Holy Spirit, so we can say no. You know, before that, we, we were slaves. We were bound to this sinful lifestyle, but now we have the ability and the power from God to say no, to choose to reject the sin that tempts us. But it's a choice that you and I have to make. God doesn't force us to do it. God doesn't say, you know what, now that you're a believer, the only thing that you can ever say is no to sin. No, he gives us the power to say no, but he doesn't force us. We can still choose to indulge in sinful behavior. 
even though we've been freed from it. So the first important thing to understand about a Christian's relationship to sin is we have a new relationship of being dead to sin. And then the second important thing that we are told here is in verses 8 through 11. Notice what Paul tells us. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has just shared some insights about how the connection that we have to Jesus' death should impact the fact that we are dead to sin. But now he's saying, you know what, there's also another connection, a connection to Jesus' resurrection that should impact how we live our life. And there are two important things that Paul wants us to understand about the risen Jesus and how we are connected to him. Notice the first thing Paul tells us, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once to sin once for all. So the first thing is, hey, Jesus died once for all for sin. He doesn't need to keep going to the cross. He dealt with it completely. It's all done. He is dead. He died to these things once for all. Second, the life that Jesus lives, he lives for God. Notice that the risen Jesus has his one ultimate purpose in the way in which he lives and the reason that he lives. He's living for God. He's living for the Father. That's his purpose. And since you and I have been raised with Jesus, Paul has a great challenge for us. Notice what it says there in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since Jesus died to sin once for all, and since Jesus now lives for God, we, since we have this connection with Jesus' death and resurrection, likewise should reckon ourselves dead to sin and live for God. Just like Jesus does, we should be following that reality, following that example. Hey, we're dead now to sin, but even more importantly, we also live now for something completely different. Because before we accepted Christ, we lived for sin. We lived for the things of this world. Well, now we're meant to live for God, and we're dead to the things of our old life. Notice here we're told to reckon. The Greek word translated reckon is a term uh, used in accounting. It means to add up the numbers or facts to see if they are so. So Paul is telling us, hey, reckon, see that this is a fact. It's a fact that you died to sin. It's a fact that you now should live for God. But those facts will not practically impact your life until we reckon them to be true. If you don't really believe that, then you're not going to live it out. If you don't really believe that you're dead to sin, if you don't really believe that the power that sin once had over you is no longer there, if you don't really believe that you can live for God because the power of the Spirit of God will enable you to do it, if you don't believe that, you're not going to live it out. You're not going to see a change in your life. You've got to reckon this to be true. You've got to actually believe, yes, what Jesus did on the cross was enough for me to overcome the sin in my life and live for God. Let's say that you lost your job and you were in debt $10,000. Because of that, you're now living in poverty. You're barely surviving. You have old torn clothes that you're wearing. You don't even have money for a meal. And then a friend, a very nice friend, writes you a check for $25,000. Now, for that check to do you any good, you have to take it 
and you have to cash it. And once you cash it, then you can pay off your debt, you can buy some new clothes, you can get some food and feed your belly. But let's say you didn't think the check was any good. Let's say, you know what, this guy doesn't have $25,000, and so you just put the check in your wallet, and you don't cash it. You don't do anything with it. Well, well, now your poverty is based on the fact that you don't believe that that check has any worth, that that check has any value, that you could actually cash that check and receive the money from it. Your poverty is due to your failure to really believe what your friend did for you. You know, and I think that's a problem that many Christians have. Jesus wrote this wonderful check where now you're free, free from slavery to sin. All you got to do is cash it. All you got to do is reckon it to be true, believe in it, cash it, and live off of it. And so often we're like that person who's, ah, I don't really believe that Jesus can write that check. I don't really believe that, 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 that if I put that into the, my bank account, that that would actually produce anything for me. And so I just kind of put it aside, don't cash it, do nothing with it. And therefore, do not receive the wonderful benefit of believing the truth that I really am dead to sin and alive to God. So the second thing to understand about a Christian's relationship to sin is we need to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. You know, this is such an important thing to realize because we are constantly faced with temptations, temptations to sin. And unless we really reckon this to be true, to really believe that, yes, I am dead to sin, I have the power to overcome it, I can live for God. When those temptations come, they're going to be so difficult for us to say no to them and be obedient to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, If God has given to you and to me an entirely new life in Christ, how can that new life spend itself after the fashion of the old life? Shall the spiritual live as the carnal? How can you that were the servants of sin, but have been made free by precious blood, go back to your old slavery? You know, when you realize what you've been free from, and maybe even more important, what the cost of your freedom was, that God himself had to sacrifice his own life, had to take your sin upon himself and receive the judgment of your sin upon himself, that's what it costs. When you realize that what your sin was and the cost of your sin, to, to ever even think to go back to that. When you realize what freed you from it to say, you know, let's go enslave myself today. You know, let's just go indulge in this today. Let's go back to this today. You know, how foolish of us to go back to the thing that we've been freed from by such an enormous cost. The third important thing to understand about a Christian's relationship to sin is in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Once you and I realize the truth that we truly are dead to sin, and that now it is our responsibility and our role as Christians to live for God. Paul says, you know what, there's some practical things to do to put that truth into practice. Notice the first practical thing that Paul tells us to do. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. The Greek word here translated reign means to rule as king over something. So Paul's saying, don't let sin 
rule as king in your life. And so often that would be a good description, unfortunately, of Christians, many of them. You know, that they're allowing sin to rule as king in their life when that sin has no rule or should have no rule over their life any longer. Because when you accepted Jesus, you were free from the old king, sin, and the old kingdom. And now you have a new king, Jesus Christ, and you have a new kingdom, his kingdom. And you're transferred from that old king, sin, and that old kingdom living in sin to the new kingdom of God and to the new king, Jesus, in your life. And it should be seen in how you live. You know, it should be seen of, hey, who's king of my life? Well, it's going to be seen in who you obey. You know, if Jesus is really king, I'm going to be obeying him. If sin's really king, I'm going to be obeying that. And just looking at your life, you can see who's reigning, who's on the throne of your life. Before we accepted Christ, we didn't have that choice. Sin was king, and it ruled, and it reigned, and we had to follow it. We didn't have a choice to say, you know what, no, I'm removing you from the throne. No, he was on the throne, and he was staying on the throne, and the only reason that we can escape that is because of what Jesus Christ did for us by dying on the cross for our sins. And now he says, I can be your king. I can remove the sin king from its throne and I can take its place and I can be the one that you have reigning in your life. Satan doesn't want us to believe this truth. He wants us to believe that sin is still king. Sin is still ruling. That you still have to go back to that. He throws these temptations. He wants you to believe you got to give in to them. You got to indulge in them. You have to obey it. But that's a lie. You and I have been set free. We have a new king. We have a new power, the power of the Spirit of God in our life, and we can overcome and say no to these temptations. So the first practical thing Paul tells us to do in order to put this truth that we are dead to sin and alive to God into practice is do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. The second practical thing is in verse 16, 13. Sorry, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. The word present means to, to yield or submit to something. And the members that Paul is referring to are the members of your body, like your eyes and your nose and your mind and your hands and your feet. He says, don't present, don't yield your members to unrighteousness, to sinful things. Don't use your eyes to sin. Don't use your hands to sin. Don't use your mind to sin. Don't use your tongue to sin. He said, you know, these members are, are meant for that. Use them to glorify God. Use them for something far greater. Don't use them to indulge in sin. In the 14th century, two brothers fought for the right over a dukedom, which is now in Belgium. The oldest brother's name was Renald, and he was commonly called Crassus, a Latin nickname meaning fat because he was morbidly uh, obese. After a heated battle, Renald's younger brother, Edward, led a successful uh, revolt against him, and he assumed the title of Duke. And instead of killing Renald, Edward devised a curious imprisonment. He had a room built around Renald. It had a normal-sized door, but he was so obese he couldn't actually get out. So windows were there. There were no bars. There was no door to lock him in. And he says, you know what? Whenever you want, you're free to leave this room. And if you can leave this room, I'll give you back your dukedom and I'll give you back your kingdom. But every single day, he sent wonderful, delicious food into that room. For 10 years until Edward died, 
Renal never was able to lose the weight he would have to and leave that room. Why? Because his desire to eat that good food and continue to be fat overcame the desire to be free and lose the weight so he could walk out that door. And I think in the same way, we have this obstacle of saying, you know what, we're free, but yet the desire for the things of the world, the desire for sin that we keep indulging in, when we say, no, no more of that, it keeps us bound. Freedom's there. The doors are open. God says, here you go. You can live in it. You can walk in it. But yet this desire for the things of this world and continuing to indulge in those things keep us bound like Renal was bound for those 10 years because he wouldn't just stop eating that food. You know, some would accuse Edward of being cruel to his brother and he would simply reply, my brother's not a prisoner, he can leave whenever he wants. And there was truth to that. And in the same way, you know what? We're not prisoners. We can leave whenever we want. The problem is we choose so often to indulge in the things that we shouldn't. And it keeps us bound to the things that Jesus has freed us from. So we need to stop presenting our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. The third practical thing Paul tells us to do is at the end of verses 13 and 14. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Not presenting your members to sin is the first step, and it's a wonderful thing. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, let, let's stop living for those things. But, but there's another step, and that's presenting yourself to God. So, so there's, a, there's one aspect of I'm not going to live and indulge myself in these sinful things anymore, but I'm just going to stop there and be like, right, I'm not going to do sin. Well, well what am I going to do with my life? Well, now I should take that, that time that I'm, instead of indulging in sinful things, I should indulge in living for Jesus. That instead of using my hands to hurt people, I should use my hands to build something that's going to help people. Instead of using my words to, to tear people down, I'm going to use those words to, to build people up. Instead of using my mind to indulge in things that are ungodly and are unhealthy, I'm going to use my mind and indulge in things that, that are godly and that are going to build people up and are going to encourage me and others. That they don't just say, well, I'm going to not use my hands in this way or, or not use my tongue in this way or, or not use my mind in this way, but I'm going to take it a step further and say, and I am going to use it in a way that glorifies God, in a way that's spiritually enriching for my life. We have a practical choice we, make to, we need to make to live out these truths. The third important thing to understand about a Christian's relationship to sin is we must choose to let God reign over us and submit our bodies to him and not to sin. It's a choice. Sanctification process is a choice. In this process of being set apart you know, from sin and set apart to God, you know, God doesn't just force us within this. He says, hey, you play a part in this. And I give you free will and free choices, and I want you to choose to obey me and choose to reject the temptation that's coming in your life. And I'm going to give you everything you need for it. I give you the power of the Spirit in your life. I've done everything to ultimately take the power of sin away from you so you now can not only escape the penalty of sin, which is hell, but you can also overcome the power of sin in your life because of what I've done so that you can live for me. Now, before we get back to John chapter 8 and finish with what Jesus says, I think it's important to note that Paul is not teaching that we should get to a place where we should 
never sin. If that's what you're taking from Romans chapter 6 and you're missing the point. 1 John 1.8 tells us this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're never going to get to a place where it's like, I have no sin. You know, I've become perfect. I, you know, I've overcome it all. You know, that's not where we're ever going to be. That's not what this verse is telling us. It's not saying get to a place of sinless perfection. It's saying you need to recognize that, you know what, what Jesus did has enabled you to overcome sin in your life. That if you are bound and you think, you know what, I can never say no to this sin, that there's something that is in my life that I continue to give over to, continue to give into, you know, that you don't have to believe the lie, that you can never say no to that, that you don't have the power within you to overcome that because it's not true. Because of what God has done on the cross and what the power of the Holy Spirit is in your life, you can overcome that sin. It doesn't mean that you always will. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to become sinlessly perfect. But you know what? You can overcome that. You can say no to that. You now actually have the power from God to do that. You can have victory over the sin in your life because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross and because of the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. But in order to have victory over sin, you got to believe that truth. Believe the truth that you know what? Hey, I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God and I can live life like that choosing to rely on the power that God's given me and to reject the temptations that come against me. Well, now I want to finish by looking at Jesus' words here, the final words that he says in verses 35 and 36 in John chapter 8. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is sharing something very important, kind of painting a picture here. Hey, we're not bound to anyone. We're not slave. We've never been enslaved to anyone ever. And Jesus made this point of, hey, you know what? Those who commit sin are slaves to sin. And then he goes on to show this wonderful picture. The difference between a slave in a household versus a son in a household. You see, a slave in a household does not have a, a permanent relationship with the father of the house. There's not this expectation that that slave will always be there. That slave could be sold. That slave could, you know, no longer be needed. You know, it doesn't have the same relationship as the son. So there's no guarantee of a relationship that's going to continue with the owner of that house. And so Jesus is bringing up an important principle. The son, he has a different relationship. The son abides forever. The son will remain in that home. The son will have welcome in that home because why? He's the son of the father. And that relationship makes him to be able to abide forever in that home because it's, he's a son. And there's that intimate, different relationship than the slave who does not have that guarantee. The slave does not have the guarantee to abide in that house forever. And what Jesus is ultimately declaring to these religious leaders is, guess what? You're not sons. You're slaves. You guys think, oh, we'll abide in the house of God forever. We're children of Israel. We're descendants of Abraham. We have the law. We have the covenants. We have this, that, and the next thing. We're going to abide forever. Jesus says, no, you're not because you're not a son. That's your problem. You're just slaves in this home. And yeah, you might be doing some things for God and living for God and serving for God you know, in different areas, but you know what? You will not abide in the house forever until your relationship with the Father changes. And so Jesus reveals something so important. You know, the reason why they can't be sons 
is because of their sin. That's what he's shown them. Your sin is the ultimate issue. You're never going to be a son until your sin is dealt with. You and I cannot have a relationship with God of being his child until our sin is dealt with. Sin is the thing that keeps us from that wonderful relationship, but Jesus is going to die on a cross, and he already did, but in this context, he's speaking to a future reality of what he's going to do. But he tells them something that's so important. The Son sets you free. You will be free indeed. You see, Jesus is the Son, the sinless one, the one who is the Son of the Father, the one who can grant sonship to those who believe in him. And he says, you know what? You guys are just slaves, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will truly have your sin dealt with and you can remain in the home of the Father forever. Speaking of heaven. You know, Jesus brings up this wonderful promise. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But you know what? That's such a bold statement. What Jesus has said in this whole chapter, if he's not God, is just silliness. If he's not God, it's just like, what are you talking about? To say, you know, if I set you free, you are free indeed. That only makes sense if Jesus truly is God. If he truly is the Son of God who can do that. But the wonderful news is he is that. And the fact that he can make this promise, he can also fulfill it. Why? Because he does go to the cross. He does take the sin of the world upon himself. He does take uh, the punishment of that sin upon himself. And so when he says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, you can hold to that. You can know that's true because he did all that was necessary to bring freedom from sin to you and to me. And that's how I want us to finish this morning, just remembering that wonderful truth because it's a it's an amazing statement but we need to recognize what Jesus had to do in order for that statement to be true in order for it to be real in order for it to benefit you and I he had to go to the cross he had to take your sin and your judgment that you deserve and my sin and my judgment that I deserve and he had to take it upon himself and he had to pay for it in order to offer you freedom from sin Because without Jesus going to the cross on your behalf, there is no freedom from sin. There is no relationship with God. There is no way to be God's child and have that relationship that remains for eternity. It's only possible because of what Jesus did. And so as we finish this morning, we're going to take communion together. And I want us to really just remember the sacrifice that Jesus did. But I want us to remember it in the context of look at what it's done for your sin. Look at the freedom that you now have. Freedom to ultimately say no to the things that you were bound to. Freedom to overcome the temptations that have so often just plagued your life. And the reason that you are now free today to do that is because of the sacrifice that Jesus made 2,000 years ago on a cross. And live like it. He's saying, I did this for you, not just to remember me, you know, once a month. I did this for you because I want you to live and walk in this freedom. I don't want you to be bound to these sins anymore. I don't want you to continue living this habitual sin here or or that sin there that you don't seem to be able to overcome. That Jesus is saying, you can overcome it because of what I've done for you. And I want you to know that you have freedom. That you have the power of God in your life to overcome the sin that plagues you. And so as we remember what Christ has done, let's just thank him for that. And let's really seek to ask him to help us to live that life of victory 
that only he offers. So can I have the worship team come on up and we're going to lead us in a song of worship. And uh, as that happens, we're going to have the communion elements packed up. Why don't you just hold on to those elements and we'll take them together.